What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law. Brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Hello and welcome back to another show of Done By Law on 3CR 8.55am. You're here tonight with Gemma and Greg and we have a new presenter on Done By Law tonight. Sam, welcome Sam. Hi, pleasure pleasure to be here. So glad to have you. Um, Tonight we have two really great and really important um, topics, so we're going to get straight into it. Um, Firstly, we're going to talk about the funding shortfall facing... um, how do I say it, Greg? Uh, Balit Nalu. Balit Nalu. Um, and secondly, we're going to talk about the um, the issues with the NDIS. So first up tonight, uh, we are joined by Leah Tolley. Uh, Leah Tolley is the managing lawyer at Balit Nalu. Now, for those who don't know, Balit Nalu is a legal centre tailor-made for Victoria's Aboriginal children and young people. It is based in Broadmeadows and is an initiative developed developed by Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, or VALS. Uh, Leah, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Leah, let's just start by um, a bit of background. What is Balit Nalu? So Balit Nalu is an uh, Aboriginal children's legal service. We're actually Australia's only specific uh, Aboriginal kids service. So we represent Aboriginal kids aged 10 to 17, um, and that's in the child protection, so Department of Health and Human Services uh, jurisdiction and criminal um, matters. So we're a very small but dynamic team and we cover a lot of the state. Um, We also have Aboriginal client service officers, which um, is what really sets us apart as a uh, very culturally specific service. Uh, We launched in July last year and that was um, in response to a few things. Firstly, uh, the the government's sort of appalling response to the Barwon litigation, which um, hopefully everyone's fairly familiar with. Um, and um, the, the statistics in Victoria are really um, quite alarming. So what, what we know is that Aboriginal kids are just um, far over-represented in um, child protection and the criminal jurisdictions. And the last thing was we had a client say to one of the Bell's lawyers, I'm just a lost cause, aren't I? So Bell's sort of thought, enough is enough. And we set up the lit, um, yeah, as a grassroots organisation to really try and change that trajectory. So um, what we know is that Aboriginal kids that have child protection involvement um, usually end up offending as youth and then it's a, a key driver to end up in adult incarceration. And you're coming up to a year then uh, that you've been going. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but how, how is that going? Is your funding secure? No, it's not. So we really, um, Vels launched us out of its own private income, a, a pocket of money that was sort of left over. Um, and we've basically burnt our way through that. So we're really calling on the state, um, the Commonwealth, anyone else who will listen um, to fund us because 
um, even in the short time we've been open, we're really seeing results and what we're doing is a, is a really relevant and important thing. And I think, um, you know, when we're talking about um, Aboriginal kids in the child protection and justice system, you know, the stats are really, really staggering. So, so Aboriginal kids are seven times more likely to receive intervention by DHHS, so the department. Um, they're 10 times more likely to be removed from their parents and placed into out-of-home care, which is, um, you know, strangers and non-family. They're 24 times more likely to receive custodial sentences than non-Indigenous kids. Wow. And they they make up 53% of all kids on an average night that kids are in detention. There's about a 1,000 in Victoria. And Aboriginal kids make up 53% of that. Yet, you know, our first peoples only make up 4% of Victoria's population. So, And have you got stats around the impact that the program is having? Uh, not yet. Um yeah, given given we are only a very small team and we have only been operating for 12 months, if we had some more funding to um, provide those reports, you know, that could certainly be a possibility. But we, what we do have is really good case studies of where we've actually managed to um, get these kids into sport, get them back into school and get them linked back in with culture and get them on that path away from um, criminal offending. So how can people help? Uh, if, if um, for, for someone who's just sitting at home or in the car and wants to help, yep. how can they do that? Yeah, please. Um, I've been writing letters to a lot of ministers and, and anyone that will listen. But if you if you love um, writing a letter, please, um, Martin Kula and I think our Premier, Daniel Andrews. Um, but also um, we are accepting donations, which uh, people can go to our website, which is bells.org.au, and just click on the donations tab. Uh, well, Leah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, to our listeners, again, if you're keen to support um, Belit Nalu or uh, Vels for that matter, um, uh, as uh, Leah was saying, you can write to your local member, write to the Premier, write to the AG, um, or donate um, through Val's uh, website. Uh, the, all the details are there. Again, uh, Leah Tolly joining us from Balitnalu. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for hearing me out. You're listening to Done by Law on 3CR, 855 AM. And you're here with uh, Sam, Gemma and Greg. We're moving on to, now to our main topic of the night. And we're going to have a chat about the NDIS and some of its issues that are coming through right now. Great. Thanks, Sam. Um, so our listeners will probably know that the NDIS commenced on the 1st of July 2016. Um, and basically, in short, it's an insurance scheme that aims to provide funding um, for supports for people who have disability. Um, it's administered by an organisation called the National Disability Insurance Agency or the NDIA. Um, and the process involves a person applying to become a participant on the basis that, among some other things, they have a permanent condition um, that substantially reduces their ability to participate in activities. Um, and then once a person's approved, they'll have access to supports that the NDIA determines are reasonable and necessary. So the scheme is relatively new. 
Um, and because it hasn't been in place for a very long time, there's still a lot of questions about how it works in practice um, and in particular the types of people who should be getting access to the scheme um, and also the funding that they should get. And so there have been a number of complaints with the way that the scheme has been rolled out um, and people have been making numerous complaints to the Commonwealth Ombudsman about its implementation. The complaints are grouped largely in two kind of um, topics. The first is that people have said that they haven't been able to access the scheme in the way they would like to or haven't been given the supports that they've sought. Um, but then uh, a really big issue that's come up recently is that when people do actually get um, decisions that they don't agree with and seek to have those decisions reviewed, uh, that those reviews aren't taking place um, in the way that they would want or in a time frame that people consider to be appropriate. So the Commonwealth Ombudsman has looked into this issue and released a report um, a couple of weeks ago about the issues that the Ombudsman has found with the scheme. So we have two guests tonight to discuss this issue. Um, the first is a very special guest, Dr Meg Clement-Kuzner, um, who is a, a social policy expert in disability and gender. Um, Meg is currently a senior policy officer at People with Disability Australia um, and she provides policy advice on NDIS issues. She has previously worked ca in campaigning and advocacy at Family Advocacy New South Wales where she was manager of systemic advocacy. Meg holds a PhD on the intersection of gender studies and political economy. Um, welcome Meg. Well, we might not have Meg on the line so we'll introduce the next um, guest while we're trying to get um, Meg on the line. Yep. Uh, so our second guest is um, a person who we've chosen to call Amy. Um, uh, we've chosen to keep her identity anonymous um, if, as Amy is a disability support worker who currently works with clients receiving support from uh, the NDIA. Uh, she has personal experience of dealing with issues raised by the NDIS. Um, thank you for joining us, Amy. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for being with us, Amy. Um, I guess the first thing we really wanted to understand was before we can really get our heads around the Ombudsman report, I, I think it's helpful for us to really understand why are people making complaints? And we'd like to hear from your experience. Um, what are the types of things that you hear, that you see um, with people and their interactions with the NDIS? So I thought I might start by explaining for anyone who's unfamiliar, support coordinators are funded in participants' plans, usually for the first, perhaps the second plan, to help them understand how NDIS funding works and how they can connect with their supports. And along the way, we do identify issues with participants. Um, perhaps their support needs have changed or they may... Um, just have simply not had a great plan put in place in the first instance. So we support them to apply for reviews to have those things looked into. Uh, some of the complaints that we're seeing are around the interfacing between NDIS and the healthcare system. There's not really a cohesive um, crossover of supports there. There's a really big grey area in between what is actually medical and what is disability. And we're finding that there's a really hard and fast line drawn by planners where they identify something saying that it's not something NDIS will fund and expect that healthcare should step up and offer it. But it's just not how things are working in reality. And it's been really hard getting planners to really understand how that works on the ground and 
how supports are actually applied in a real-life situation doesn't actually look the same on paper. Uh, mm. So that's been a really common complaint that we've come across. Um, Amy, um, can we just... Um, yeah. I think it might be useful for us to ask you, why does it matter whether or not something's medical um, or not? And, and can you give our listeners an example of what that looks like? Yeah, sure. So um, an example uh, I have is a participant I've been supporting who um, he has quite high support needs. He has a number of medical and disability issues and a lot of people would understand that uh, some things start off as medical and become uh, impairments which are considered disability. So there is a bit of a, a crossover where one exacerbates the other. Um, in his case, we've been sort of uh, we've been waiting quite a number of months for a review to have uh, support needs funded for him, so that his support workers can be trained to actually uh, support his high medical needs. So for him, uh, he needs support workers that are trained to do the uh, peg feeding as well as tracheostomy care. And uh, the tracheostomy care is quite a niche support. It's not something that you expect your support workers to already have. So we've asked to have funding for his support workers to be trained so that they can safely support him in the home. Uh, Tracheostomy care is quite a specialised support. It involves uh, suctioning, shallow suctioning of somebody's mucus from their lungs. Um, It's it's something that you need to be quite careful doing. So therefore, it's it's something that needs to be specialised training uh, to actually do that properly. And NDIS is deemed that that is something in, in this participant's instance that they don't see that they should be funding the training of those support workers uh, because they think that it should be delivered through healthcare. Um, so that's been a really ongoing battle because it's just something that used to work under the previous funding model. Uh, providers used to be able to claim the money for delivering that training, but under NDIS, if you do not individually have it funded in your plan, uh, you, you will not receive that support. So we run the risk of losing some really highly qualified support workers across the market. And uh, as a result, this participant now only has one trained support worker to deliver supports to him at the moment because we are unable to actually fund the training of new supports for his weekly rosters uh, of supports in the home. So it's been really tough for some participants out there that are uh, you know, really copying the brunt of that grey area between the two systems. And are there... Um, really basic things that that client is missing out on um, in terms of um, day-to-day activities? What what does that mean for him? So for him, it means that um, he's left in quite a vulnerable position. We've only got one uh, adequately trained support worker. So he has a single parent who provides his care. Uh, so between her and their one support worker, they're expected to cover supports for this gentleman week round and he's someone with his high medical needs um, who requires 24-7 supervision. The tracheostomy care could require suctioning, um, you know, every 30 minutes or so. Uh, So that's round-the-clock care that his mum and one support worker are providing for him uh, day in, day out. So it's it's really hard and there's a huge risk that if something happens to his mum, a huge support network for him it's just totally gone, you know. It's There's no-one else to replace that care. Uh, and it's really overburdening her as the sole uh, caregiver for him. And um, we're on the risk of losing that one support worker uh, and not having anyone else come in the home to support his mum as well. Um, yeah, it's really limited 
what support we can deliver. There's only so much one trained worker can actually do as well. Uh, so basically, most of the time, he's not actually accessing his community. He's in the home and just receiving enough support to get him by, really, to see him through and keep him alive. And unfortunately, it's not... Um, this is not just one matter. This is happening... We, we keep hearing these stories and we really appreciate um, you coming on tonight um, and we know that uh, it's it's been a risk for you to come on, so thanks for coming on anonymously. No worries. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. That's uh, Amy. Amy is a disability support worker uh, who works with uh, clients receiving uh, support from the NDIS. Uh, we're going to go now to Dr Meg Clement-Kuzner, uh, social policy expert in disability and gender and senior policy officer at People with Disability Australia. Are, are you there, uh, Meg? We don't have Meg yet, but um, just uh, as we've mentioned, Meg's previously worked in campaigning and advocacy at Families, uh, Family Advocacy in New South Wales, where she was manager of systemic advocacy. Um, and she also holds a PhD on the intersection of gender studies and political economy. She's also a self-confessed nerd with a strong interest in feminist and LGBTIQ plus politics and culture. Um, and we're going to get on to talk about the Ombudsman report and what it says. Um, and we know that the Ombudsman uh, just released uh, the reports into the complaints now, and I believe she's on the line now. Meg, what does the Hi ombuds? Guys, can you hear me? Yeah, we, we can, can now. finally. Sorry about okay, all the mess fantastic. ups there. In the couple of minutes we've got, what does the report tell us? Yeah, the report tells us that at the moment, the or rather in February 2018, the NDIA had a backlog of about 8,100 reviews. Um, so that's people seeking to get a review of a decision that's been made by the NDIA about their support. And of uh, the 8,000 plus reviews that they have, that doesn't include a bunch where um, they had just not been able to address the review in time and so it had rolled over into people's annual review. I think that number was about 4,000. Wow, what a backlog. That's a big number. Yeah, it's a huge number of people who aren't having their concerns addressed. Yeah. And so, Meg, what does that mean for people? Well, for some people it could mean that they aren't getting the supports that they need to live their day-to-day -day life. So we know that the NDIA, uh, implementing the NDIS was supposed to provide lifetime support for people's individual needs, um, and it has for some people. But for other people, like a uh, person with disability that People with Disability Australia is working with at the moment, it might mean that their supports are so inadequate that they're not getting the support they need to get out of bed every day. Yeah. It can be as serious as mm. that. And what needs to change from now? Where, where do we go from here? Yeah, well, we would say that a scheme that is for people with disability needs to be a scheme that is run by people with disability and with the insights of people with disabilities. So we would say that the NDIA really needs to employ more people with disability. They need to train their planners to work better with people with disability and consult them about their plans so that uh, not so many people are going to reviews in the first place. People with Disability Australia would really like to see the planning process improved 
the training of staff improved and the staffing cap on the NDIA lifted so that we're not getting this huge backlog of reviews in the first place. Uh, well, uh, unfortunately, due to our technical issues, we've uh, lost all the time that we wanted to speak to uh, about this um, very important issue today, Meg. Um, but um, hopefully you'll be able to join us on another occasion to explore this um, issue in um, much greater detail. It seems like it's one of those things that just won't go away unless there's some real change. Um, and uh, we, we would be delighted if you could join us again um, sometime in the future. But uh, for the short time we had with you today, thanks very much. Sure, guys. I'd love to, and thanks for having me. Thanks you again, Meg.